this afternoon. <laughs> writers who were rogues and vagabonds and i'm roger moore i didn't supply the microphone all right welcome to america's premier true crime podcast 14 years and all we've changed is the light bulbs and the audio processor hey matt matt allen our producer got good news for you matt i don't know if you can hear me or not According to the, uh, there's a rating service now for podcasts. It's like, you know, you got the Arbitron for radio and you've got Nielsen for TV. I'm sure this is a misprint, but I'm going to run with it. Whoa, what the hell's that? Anyway, according to the, uh, the enviable research, this program you're listening to right now is in the top 2.5% of all podcasts in the world. Now, before they figure out that's a misprint, <laughs> we're going to run with that like, like you wouldn't believe. I'd believe it. Now, yeah, we're going to run with it. Yeah. Dan Zapanski eats your heart out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I saw that. Congratulations to the top two points. Five percent of all the podcasts in the world. All right, that's Mark Boyer, co-host. I'm Burl Bear. Mm-hmm. Magic Matt Allen. Do you have to call back again, or is he still there? Oh, he's there. Good hey, afternoon. Hey, Welcome Nick. Back. Welcome back. Hey, Burl. How you doing? Better and better every day in every way. It's a, we last said the not just never say the last time. The previous time you were on the show, uh, we got cut short. <laughs> Through no fault yeah, of our own. We'll, 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 we'll make up for it now. We'll make up for it now. What's what's the latest gossip on the street? <laughs> what's the latest scandal? Well, you know, what we have is Clarence Thomas um, talking about abolishing same-sex marriages and contraceptives. Yeah, I noticed when, that. If my when, tubes were tied, I'd have to untie them. Well, the thing about Clarence Thomas is he's a misogynist and a pervert and uh, a Supreme Court justice. Well, that's a good combination. I think it's a winning one. Uh, you know, what? Well, on what? On what do you base the uh, the uh, pervert stuff? Yeah, the the rhetoric. Yeah. What? What? We need some. We yeah. can't just have random accusations. Well, yeah, yes, you can because you. No, guys, no, you, I, you I, I'm not a left. Random <laughs> accusations. There was a Facebook written in 1995 by Jane Mayer, who is oh, here a Russian worker. Who is she? Uh, Jane Mayer. You know who she is? She is a fairly renowned journalist. She's a world and renowned journalist. Oh she? boy, oh boy, she's a journalist. Yay! Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Yay! big fan of journalists. Especially I'm a fan of Nick. Cause Yay! Well, <laughs> you're, not, you're not hearing me out. So she wrote a book called Strange Justice, The Selling of Clarence Thomas. Yeah. And when Thomas was the head of the Equal Opportunity Commission, he was right around the corner from a uh, video store in which she was, uh, he was a porn addict. Well, that's and okay. 
And then the stuff that he did with the Nita Hill, he did with like 10, at least 10 other women. And now the Coca-Cola made a lot of money off that endorsement. <laughs> uh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And what's really interesting is at that hearing where he said it was a high-tech lynching, the hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, the chairman at that point was Joseph Biden, our current president. And Joseph, there was a second woman that was going to testify against Thomas. Her name was Angela Wright. She came from North Carolina to Washington, D.C. to back up Anita Hill. And Joseph Biden lifted her subpoena. So it was just a he said, she said. And Thomas became a Supreme. And, and, and that low life ended up on our Supreme Court. So what was it? What, what, I've been trying to feel the, the little audio got a little strange there. What was it Biden did? Biden lifted the subpoena of Angela Wright, who was going to back up Anita Hill. I wonder yeah. why he did that. What, to, to expedite something un, unimportant? <laughs> um, I believe that there was some kind of deal that was struck between uh-huh. dirty politicians. Well, that's not unusual. Uh, as we were mentioning, uh, Americans tend to be naive on the degree of uh, corruption, and yet they have no trouble accepting movies like the great one with the, uh, was it, Broderick Crawford, where he plays, uh, what's the guy from down south that was the crooked politician? Oh, Dewey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huey Long. Remember that? Academy Award winning performance by Broderick Crawford playing a character based on Huey Long, I believe. Corrupt politician, you know. Yes, I, I'm familiar with you and Long's legacy. Yeah, so uh, uh, in, in hindsight, we're usually pretty willing to accept it, but not usually in current sight. <laughs> well, here's the thing with our system. I believe that Clarence Thomas is compromised because of his pornographic predilections and his predilections to be a misogynist. And that... I think I've written two books about sexual blackmail in America, the Franklin Scandal and also Confessions of the DC and Adam. And in both those books, I show that our legislators at the federal level, many of them are compromised. I'll I'll give you an example. There was um, Larry Craig. He was a very conservative uh, senator from Idaho. He'd been in Washington, D.C. for 25 years. Right. And first as a uh, representative and then as a senator. And I wrote a book, as I said, called Confessions of a D.C. Madam. And the guy who ran that gay escort service was sending Craig uh, prostitutes quite a bit. Craig, Craig was really in the gay prostitute. And then Kirby Dick made a movie called Outrage, where he looked at Craig, and Craig was getting prostitutes from other areas, or from other people, and um, he ultimately was busted by a vice squad. In a bathroom in an airport, right? Yes, yes. The vice squad was slapping his foot on the ground, and I guess um, Craig reacted to it, and he was busted for something lewd and lascivious in a bathroom. I don't know. Propositioning the vice squad guy. That happened in the Minneapolis International Airport, and I'm from Minneapolis, and I was uh, sitting on the commode one day, and someone at the airport and someone was slapping his foot 
in, in the next row, and I wasn't familiar with that type of uh, protocol, so I, I just felt like I had a neurological disorder. I felt bad for well, you could have wound up arrested yourself. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I just felt bad for the guy. I you know, thought he was like cerebral palsy or something. But what uh, but what what amazes me is someone with with those predilections, with the emphasis on the lick, with those predilections, mm-hmm. why would they, instead of advocating for people such as themselves, they become their own worst enemies legislatively? Yes, uh, Larry Craig had, I believe, the worst record in the Senate for uh, gay rights legislation. And, and here's the thing, a guy that's in the closet like that, it's like the Jagger Hoover syndrome. They hate themselves so much um, because they're so closeted and they can't be who they really are. And they turn that hate towards other things. And in Larry Craig's case, he turned that hate towards uh, gay legislation. And, and J.D. Hoover's case, he turned it towards everybody that he didn't like. Hmm. It's strange. And then once we get an image of it in our mind of someone who's despicable, if they change, usually we don't know about it. Like George Wallace. I didn't know George Wallace had done a complete 180 on his racial attitudes until I saw the biopic. You know, uh, I I just remember him standing in the doorway and blocking the hall. Some people do change, but I think it's rare. My, as I mentioned, I've written two books about sexual political blackmail in the United States. And I talked to a blackmail photographer. And now, how do you wait a second? Because I'm a true crime writer, and I have to give my sources too. How do you contact? Where you put an ad in uh, Craigslist? Wanted blackmail photographer. Well, actually, it was the Village Voice, but uh, no. <laughs> um, I was able to make contact with him through someone that knew him. Oh, okay. There was no way that he would have talked to me cold. Um, and I got to know him a little bit. He was a little on the unctuous side. But I asked him how it worked, and he said, it's like you're on a yacht, and it's a beautiful day, and you can have any, and it's a beautiful yacht, and you can have anything on the yacht that you want. He's referring to compromised uh, politicians. But if you decide to get off the yacht, the people on the yacht are going to make sure that you drop. So there's, once you're compromised, there's zero incentive to get off the yacht because you're, that will destroy your career, it will destroy your family, it will destroy your reputation. Right. You'll be categorically destroyed. So you just keep, you stay in the hell you know. <coughs> yeah. God, what a, I mean, that's probably been going on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Well, now we have pinhole cameras, which makes it much easier. But yes, um, it's said that uh, prostitution is the world's oldest profession. I tend to think politics is the world's oldest profession. It's probably the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So somebody had to have the power in the caves, and then he was able to work out a deal with the woman, I guess. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> I've been talking to too many primates about it. <laughs> it helps to have an opposing thumb. <laughs> you do yes. primates. <laughs> now, here's a question for you. How does a man such as you, whom I, I admire for some bizarre reason, I've yet to quite decipher, because <laughs> you're a good investigative journalist, is you've done these two books on uh, sexual 
blackmail in America. How do you make a living? I know you had Jeffrey Epstein's little black book, and you couldn't get anybody to buy it. Well, I ultimately did. Uh, Gawker finally bought it in 2015. Since I've taken this trajectory in my writing career, it's been, uh, I used to be more of a mainstream journalist, and it was much easier to make a living. Let me just put it that way. Since I've taken this route, I've been able to make a living as, as a writer. Sometimes I'm kind of amazed that I have, but I, <laughs> that I have. It's been pretty amazing. Yeah, what did you mostly do articles for magazines and stuff like that? I, um, I've got a book coming out. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've written, I, I've, I've written three books in the last, uh, in the last 10 years, 11 years, actually last 14 years, and then I've, uh, co-authored a book, and I've, I've, I've also done some book writing. So mostly it's, uh, it's books at this point. Well, that's a good deal. I was uh, explaining, I was writing a, a little note to the Ca- California um, EDD people, explaining to them that just because I signed a contract for a book in 2020 does not mean I get any money in 2020. Well, you've got to make sure that you get the money. If you, if you don't get money from a publisher, the publisher is going to have zero incentive to put money behind that book. Well, so, my publisher has plenty of incentive because they're paying me uh, a percentage rate on royalties so much better than what I've ever had before that it makes up for a lack of advance. That's, uh, that, can, that can be a good deal, too. Yeah. So it's just a matter of having the book come out. <laughs> But you, you know how it is, and people love it. Well, I found out people love it when we talk shop on this show. That if you spend, like, say, a year researching, you know, getting all your proverbial ducks in a cosmic row, and then another year writing it, that's two, and then whatever their publishing schedule is, because they got to do their editing and their line edit and run it by the legal department so they don't get sued. It could be, you know, two, three years before it hits the marketplace. Hopefully it does well and you get money in the mail, you know, for the rest of your With, uh, This book I'm being published, I think it, it was going to be in July, but it looks like August. Um, it was, it's called Watergate. And the story that we've been first said about Watergate is extremely erroneous. Oh, really? And, yes. And at the heart of Watergate is the CIA sexual blackmail operation. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. This, this book that I wrote about Watergate, it has 2,328 citations. Just about every statement of fact is backed up by a citation. That's important. Because I'm coming at Watergate from a completely different, from a, at a completely different way than what we've seen in the mainstream media. And I really show that uh, Bob Woodward and and Carl Bernstein are, are serial liars. Uh-huh. The, the reporting was uh, uh, just a lot of bullshit. Um, your audience can go to my website, nickbryantnyc.com, and, and they can read some blogs I've written about Woodward and Bernstein. Huh. Well, I want everyone on the show and listening to know that I am not a crook. Bertle, on the other hand, jury is still out. <laughs> jury is still out. I, I am definitely not an, an ex-apologist, but 
the thing about Nixon, and, and a lot of people don't know this, is when he was elected, he issued a national security memorandum in which he basically said that the State Department, the CIA, and the Department of Defense are going to have no role in his, in his geopolitical mode. Because he wanted to, he wanted to make a rapprochement with China, open China up, and he also right. wanted to do strategic arm limitations with the Russians. Right. And the hawks in the government were completely against that. And actually, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and this is well documented, the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, initiated an espionage ring on Nixon to find out what he was doing with the Soviets and the Chinese, because he was keeping it quite clandestine. And the Nixon administration ultimately busted that espionage ring, and uh, but they kept it quiet. And then the CIA started to infiltrate the Nixon administration, and almost Berger's were CIA except for G. Gordon Liddy. He was FBI, and and, he was, and they just the, the two CIA guys, the leading CIA guys, James McCord and Howard Hunt. They just made circles around Liddy. They, they, Liddy absolutely had no idea what they were doing, what they were up to. Hmm. Fascinating, Captain. You know, my, I don't know if you're aware now, my brother, may he rest in peace, Stan Bear, uh, is the fellow who uh, did the reinterpretation of the frozen assets law, uh, which allowed the China and the U.S. to have trade. And uh, I held his hand the weekend that the first Chinese ship pulled into Seattle Port, and the question was: Was the ship going to be seized by some American corporation that had lost, you know, big bucks uh, in the revolution? And uh, there were rumors to that effect right up to the last minute. I mean, we were sweating bullets over that one. Uh, if it had been a horrible international incident, I think my brother's career would have been over. But uh, the decision was made. There's more money to be made in the future than there is trying to go back for money that was lost in the past. And the ship wasn't seized, as you well know. And uh, the U.S. and uh, China have had trade, made my brother an international hero, and uh, fairly cemented his career pretty damn well. <laughs> and he's lived happily ever after. Yeah, and tell me, I think he lived to be 87 years old. I went to, of course, went to his memorial, and uh, uh, China sent a message by videotape. Uh, on how significant uh, my brother was to uh, Chinese and American relations and trade and all that. That's kind of hard. This is kind of an interesting uh, story. I wrote a book about two Chinese guys. This is or not a book, but an article. This was uh, probably 22 years ago. And a Chinese businessman set up shop in L.A. and a Chinese businessman set up shop in New York. And if you needed an organ, these were your go-to guys. And only 1.5% of our population is AB negative. So if you're AB negative and you need an organ, it's going to be tough. But you could could have gone to these guys and they would have given you an AB uh, negative heart, uh, liver, lung, whatever you needed, they would give you. And what was going on is they were tissue typing prisoners in China, shooting them in the back of the head and then harvesting their organs. Wow. So that's, that's a very cold-blooded government. Yeah. Very. Sounds just like ours. I would be surprised if we got that going on. The way things are going, like, uh, I said to Mark, do you ever watch Handmaid's Tale? And he said, no, I didn't want to be depressed. He said, well, get ready to live it. 
Uh, I've, I've never seen it. Oh, that's when uh, there's a kind of a, um, a revolution in America and, and part of the East Coast becomes, uh, and there's also been a, uh, a, like an epidemic where most women could not conceive and can't become pregnant. So if you can, that's, that's dandy. And they become like handmaids, slaves, more or less, who are to bear children for the elite. Then ah. Then you have no man's land in the middle. And then on the, uh, the far west coast is, uh, is Liberalville. <laughs> but if you're on the east, the uh, far right religious people have totally taken over. And it's an incredibly repressive uh, system. Uh, very misogynistic, etc. There was uh, <clears throat> in Australia for many, many years, uh, even up through the 60s, there was um, a program that, that was administered for half Aboriginal girls. Half Aboriginal? Half, yeah. They weren't all Aboriginal and they weren't all Not Anglo Saxon. They were a mixed breed. And it was considered that because that neither society would accept them, that they needed to be taken care of. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, so they'd be taken off, taken to education camps. Oh, really? Yeah. And they were, they were taught how to be servants, how to cook, how to clean, how to manage the household. And then when they graduated, they were auctioned off. Uh, to families, wealthy families that could afford them. Huh. And then they would go and live there. Now, uh, some, even though they were stuck in an inservitude for life, had a pleasant life. But there was a, uh, was a significant percentage that was the handmaiden's tale, I would guess. Yeah. They, you know, uh, sexual abuse, torture. All that unpleasant stuff. Ugly. And then... Um, this one young girl said no, and she escaped. And in Australia, the, the continent is sort of bisected by a fence. And the sheep and the other grazing animals for livestock on one side and nature on the other. And it's called the rabbit-proof fence because you don't want the rabbits eaten which are growing, right. and yeah, preventing yeah, their animals. And she walked the 1,500 miles uh, following this rabbit-proof fence to her home. And they finally found her, brought her back, and she escaped again. Good wow. Her. And they made a movie out of it with Kenneth Branagh called Rabbit-Proof Fence. Fascinating movie. How about that? Put that on your to-watch list. It's amazing. It was a movie, I can't think of the name. It was made with Colin Farrell about a group that escaped the uh, a gulag in Siberia and walked, and some of them actually walked and made it to India through the Gobi Desert, which it's, uh, and it's a true story. It's quite a tale. Huh. Then there's the one with Orson Welles, etc., Ship of Fools, where the people escape Germany and try to come to America so they won't be killed in the Holocaust and we send them back? Um, I'm aware of uh, if, I don't, you've heard of Operation Paperclip, right? Say that uh, not, no, I have not. Okay, so that was the way because a bunch of uh, Nazi war criminals our government decided that they would be useful. 
Right. And we got them into uh, the United States because a lot of them were war criminals. Like Warner Von Braun, who was the nucleus of NASA, he was a war criminal. And he worked uh, Jewish prisoners basically to death um, on his B2 rockets. But we came. He, but he came here. We washed his record, and he came here through Project Paperclip. And uh, he, I think he was Time Time man of the Year, year. Man of the year in yeah. 1965. Yeah. And then, and then he was McCarthy persecuted him as a communist. No, it was after it was after McCarthy. I think uh, when he got when he got big. Hmm. It's amazing. Uh, I finally saw on TV. And in the History Channel, they're talking about Hitler and that he went to Argentina, which he did. I mean, there were people who recognized him in Argentina. Well, that's the Fuhrer. The Fuhrer in Argentina is like Rebecca well, Sunnybrook Farm. I'm kind of of the opinion that the Russian account of his passing was accurate. He and, his, and, his, and Eva uh, poisoned themselves. and They were still in the bunker when the Russians showed up. Well, see, I don't know if I buy that one. But, the, uh, but uh, there was a, a famous hotel in Argentina uh, run by a, a, a wealthy couple that were Nazi sympathizers. And so all of the Nazi sympathizers would congregate at this hotel for parties and discussions and uh, providing funds back to Germany. Um it was so well known that Hitler sent gifts. Well, that was awful nice of him. He sent, you know, trinkets and gifts and whatever, you know, congratulations on their anniversaries and stuff. If you, but, if, uh, go ahead, sorry, sorry, Mark. Well, after the, uh, during the war, there was the revolution in Argentina. Mm-hmm. And the new regime came in and recognized, despite their predilection to support, um, Hitler eh, probably wasn't the best of choices. Mm-hmm. And so begrudgingly, they took an anti-Axis stance. And then the hotel fell into disrepair and disrepute. Cologne mm-hmm. um, had a, a bunch of Nazis in his government, I believe. But Argentina and, remained receptive. Yeah. And so uh, near the end of the war, there was a flood of, uh, of Nazis that Went to Argentina to live their lives out. Yeah, as best they could. Well, considering that the majority of them that made it out um, were high enough ranking officers to have acquired sufficient wealth, wealth from other countries. <laughs> yep. And the Vatican helped them. The, yes. The red lines, the infamous red lines. Yep. All right. I knew the church was good for something. <laughs> Who was that? <laughs> what? Well, uh, was it Roosevelt? Was the president? No, it's true. Franklin Roosevelt was the president, and then it was uh, he, he, he was president for most of the world, but most of the paperclip stuff was done under Harry Truman. But um, uh, uh, Roosevelt was repeatedly asked to aid uh, the Jews that were trying to escape, and ignored it. Um, and it was uh, his. It was either it was Truman. Who was Bess? Bess Truman. Okay, so she convinced Truman. To let the near the end of the war, there was a, a, a an ocean liner with uh, refugee Jewish refugees, and finally consented to allow them to enter the country, because at the time they were considered undesirable. 
Yeah. Well, there was. A- I remember that they they had come here uh, previously, and we had denied them entrance. Right. No Stand one back. would let the Jews in. Uh, the British wouldn't let the Jews in. The uh, the United States wouldn't let the Jews in. Um, it was uh, there was tremendous betrayal right there. Because, uh, we were a people without a country, which makes the liberation of Jerusalem and the formation of the Jewish state during the war so uh, so important and yeah. significant. It's such a deal, you know. We just can't pass up a good deal like that. <laughs> out here on the where we live, out here on the West Coast, there's a very famous temple um, at, uh, named after a very famous rabbi of the period. But <clears throat> that particular rabbi did everything he could behind the scenes to keep the European Jews out. out. Of America. Yeah, keep them out. Keep them out. And it wasn't until. Best came along and screamed and yelled at these idiots that he finally did something. Yeah. Relented. Uh, that, in fact, one of these slurs against Jews, you probably heard kike, that one. You know where that comes from? It comes from mockery of the second wave of Jewish immigrants who came from Europe and thought that if they put ski uh, on the end of their name, it would make them sound like royalty. Interesting. Uh, and so the the first generation would mock them, call them kickies, because of the, the you know SKI on the end, and then the uh, the anti-Jewish element took that semi-affectionate mockery and made it kike as a uh, an insult. Um, my family named Bojarski, but um, my family came uh, around just around the revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1915-ish. Right, same with... Uh, my father was nine when he escaped from Russia into Romania. Mm. But those were, people were pretty adventurous back in those days, Nick. You know, I, I, I have difficulty thinking of me doing some of the things my father did at his age. Like, he, he comes to America uh, when, he, when he, what, he's nine, ten years old. He wants to go to the World's Fair. I guess it was in New York. So he gets on a freight train with a jar of peanut butter. His parents know he's going, have fun, son. And he gets a freight train to New York to see the World's Fair. He rides the freight train back. I mean, if a kid goes through that today, they'd probably put him in counseling somewhere. Well, no, they would arrest the parents. Arrest the parents, yeah. Um, um, Times have changed. Times definitely have changed. When I was a teenager in high school, um... I came very late in the family tree. So uh, I was uh, over in the summer babysitting the neighborhood kids. Not just my sister's three, but the the cul-de-sac. And then all they had to do was go to their parents and say, uh, Uncle Mark has taken us to the movies. And the parents would hand them a couple bucks, and then off we would go. And I had eight, nine kids in my station wagon. And there was absolutely nothing thought of it. We would go. I'd sneak them in in the back door. <laughs> uh, we'd go see whatever movie was there. Nowadays. And take, you know, we'd go and get something to eat. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. You'd, nowadays, you'd probably get arrested. Um, <laughs> if I was uh, 16 now, 
and there was an equivalent situation, there wasn't a chance in hell that they would let their daughters go with me anymore. No, uh-uh. And I, you know, I'm still, you know, they were safer with me than, the, than they were with them. Safer than they were with their parents, probably. Yeah, I would have rolled, I would have laid down in front of a steamroller to protect the kids. Yeah, well. When I was a teenager and into my early 20s, I hitchhiked around the country about 30, 35,000 miles. I spent three or four years doing that. Wow. And it was it was the, the Donovan thing, where Dharma is the uh, paler word for truth, and, and bum is the American word for bum. So I, I was the Dharma bum. And um, I had a great time. It was... Uh, it's probably the best time of my life because you're young and you're free and you can do anything that you want. I was pretty quick on my feet and made friends pretty easily. So, uh, yeah, I had a great time. But I noticed the older Donald Bob, the, the Dharma was receding, which just left bomb. So uh, I decided to go to college <laughs> after about three or four years on the road. You're kind of the Jack Kerouac of the... Uh... <laughs> oh, yeah. It was great. It was, it, was, uh, it was a wonderful time to hitchhike. It was the uh, last half of the 70s. And I think the 60s as a cultural movement went from like 1955 to the late 70s. Hmm. And I, and I kind of caught the tail end of that as a kid. And, um, yeah, I had a great time hitchhiking. You know, uh, when... Uh... We first started the show today. They mentioned uh, you being a, that woman being a journalist and uh, producer, Matt Allen. Was like, oh, a journalist! You know, uh, those of the Soviet Union, it's not called the Soviet Union anymore, Russia, they're now jailing their journalists if they dare say something the government doesn't like. Well, that's uh, happening quite a bit. Jewish. Yeah. Uh, there's a, in South America, there's a uh, kind of a... Does that relate to my course, response? Oh, you, it wasn't, because like you it said, is, journalism was like maybe not quite cool, or is cool. I didn't say it was well, cool, in, I'm saying... In, in South America, hold on, Nick, hold on. No, 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 Matt, Matt, come back, come back, no, come back. No, come no, back. no it, it's ridiculous. You have a bunch of idiot sticks who are slanted one way or the other, and they call themselves journalists. I think journalism is gone. Well, you should read some of my stuff. And Nick says, read some of his stuff and you'll feel better. What? <laughs> he says, but read some anyway, of his stuff and you'll feel better. I yeah. think it's, just, it's journalism should be neutral. Ne- neutral. Uh, but it's not. That's a problem. You know, it, the back in the days of the great newspapers, they were owned by conservatives who hired liberals. And it was a perfect balance. They would keep the liberals from going too far, and they didn't get stuck in the past. But now you've got this split, this divide, where... Polar opposites. Uh, yeah, polar yeah. opposites, and, and you wonder if facts matter anymore. Well, they, yeah. they obviously they don't. And uh, did, did we know when Johnny Carson, the, the legend Johnny Carson, the greatest talk show host of all time, Johnny Carson, did we know... Never... Which side of the aisle he was on? Never. Case in point. Exactly. Uh, I noticed that when uh, Walter Cronkite did his first editorial... Another he, another great example, and he was a big lefty, but he kept it in check. Yeah, and when he did his one editorial, 
he got up away from the news desk. Yes. So you'd make sure you knew right. it wasn't news. Right. You have to make that distinction between what is who, what, when, where, why, and, and what is what I think that means. <laughs> you know, it's two different things. Uh, and But one thing that Fox does, which is insanely clever in a negative sense, is they'll be doing the news on screen and running editorial in text on the bottom. Yes, very impartial. Yeah, that's why they're, they're not allowed in Canada, you know. I miss McNeil there. Yeah, they were quite good. Well, they, there's a joke about uh, PBS News. And the joke is, and now for another view of Hitler, that is they were so intent on being even-handed that, that even if they talked about Hitler, they'd have someone on who liked him. <laughs> Just to make sure it was balanced. I wasn't alive, so I don't know. I don't know if this is still true, but it was, and that was true not too long ago, that... Six corporations own 90% of right. the media that Americans can buy. That's right. Uh, and, and that, in and of itself, and that was a problem that Clinton created and uh, W created. And as these news groups get consolidated, they're going to be friendly to the government because the government is allowing them to exist. They could easily be broken up with... Uh, uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act. Right. So they're, they're going to make sure that they don't make the government very upset, and then the government is going to use them, and then they're going to continue to be conglomerates. And the only people that are really hurt by that is the Americans, yes, because we're yeah. kept in the dark about so many well, that, things. That's like the uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which never happened. Yes. Uh, perfect example. The journalists well, who I were mean, there knew that nothing happened. But if they wrote that, they'd seem unpatriotic by telling the truth. There were a lot of journalists at the New York Times who knew that Bush's war because of uh, Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction was total bullshit. But only one of them spoke up, and he's no longer at the New York Times. Well, so we had uh, the, we had Matt Hat on his show, because he had been on my show an hour earlier, Dr. Scott Bond. Uh, who was an executive at NBC for a while, who uh, quit to become a, a, a sociologist. And his, I know Scott. You know Scott, cool guy. Yeah, uh, yeah I like him. You probably are familiar with uh, his doctoral dissertation, which was Mass Deception, uh, the Selling of the Iraq War. And what tipped him off was he's watching the news, and Bush used the term evil. And he knew from sociology that you only use the word evil if you want to portray them as someone you cannot reason with. That they're almost like not human. And so they start documenting how many times the exact same phraseology was covered with the different government departments. Went, ah, we have a plan in motion here. <laughs> and that was his doctoral thesis. Uh, it was very, very good. He was on Matt's show. He was on my show. It was very, very what did they? What did they call the... What did the Americans coin the um, Association of Nations in World War II against us? The Axis of Evil. Bingo. Dingo. Dingo, bingo. Dingo, Axis bingo. of Evil. Axis of well, we're dealing with some people, uh, evil people in World War II. I, I gotta admit that. <laughs> you know what I just well, thought of? Uh, family Feud. 
The question. Good answer. Was, Good answer. Name a famous Jew. And he said, Leonardo da Vinci. He said, no, no, no. Uh, name another one. Uh, Socrates. No, no. Finally, the last chance. Mussolini. <laughs> and uh, what's his name? The, uh, that time the Jewish host, what was, what was his name? Whatever he was. Uh, Richard, fell on the Richard floor. Da- Richard yeah. Doss. Dawson. That incredible idiot. Yeah, you just go, by God. <laughs> Name a favorite show, Mussolini. <laughs> Welcome to mainstream television. Jeez. We were uh, we were talking about airplane on the next show a couple of weeks ago, uh, and one of one of my favorite, yeah, two of my favorite little bits is uh, uh, the stu- the stewardess, <laughs> the flight attendant, is handing out something for people to read. And he goes to one person and he rejects everything. And she goes, would you like to read about the world's famous, you know, the greatest Jewish Olympic athletes? And hands her a half a page. And then, of course, there was the the quick shot of Air Israel with the Talit and the Titsi. I was like, I was going to do a book on on, uh, famous Jewish football players called Jews and Pigskin. Mm. (laughs) Where were we? Um, um, yeah, I didn't see a lot of uh, Jews play, make it to the National Hockey League. I wonder what's up with that. I don't know. That's um, a good because we don't, we don't like cold weather. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Say now, it's, it's interesting because my, you know, my family came through Ellis Island like most refugees did, and there were a number of places that they, they landed, but the three majors were New York City, stayed there. Uh, suburbs of New Orleans mm-hmm. and uh, Canada, up you know, up yeah. the coast, uh, up the east coast in Canada, and that's where they that's where they ended up. So I guess some Jews like the cold. Yeah, well, they, they, just if they you. went to Canada. Yeah, they just, they just didn't like hockey. Yeah, that's it. So what the puck is this? I don't know. I, uh, I'm trying to think of all the famous Jewish baseball players besides Sandy Koufax. Yeah, wouldn't play. Well, wouldn't play on the high holy days. Correct. I remember that one, Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> yeah, it was World Series. Yep, it wouldn't play. The high holy days. Yeah. Yeah. Teach him a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> they understood. Understood. So what? What? This thing you're working on now, you got the Watergate thing coming out. Well, you got any other hot prospects? Find any more sex scandals we can uh, look forward to? Well, I've got the Nick Bryan podcast. And uh, your listeners should check it out. Where is it? Where is the Nick Bryant podcast? Uh, All you got to Google is Nick Bryant podcast, and it'll pop right up. Yeah. Wherever wherever podcasts are. Well, just like us, we're on iTunes, Spotify. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What would they What would they type in, Burl, to find us? You type in True Crime Uncensored. You have to get the uncensored in there. Because there's so many true crime podcasts. Yes. Well, you know they're all ripoffs of us because we're <laughs> we were the because we we're, we're geniuses. We're geniuses. Yes. yes we're. I think at the same time we started, which was uh, 14, almost 15 years ago. 14 years ago, uh, you had uh, uh, the Susan Murphy Milano and right. what's her name and what's her name, they, uh, and uh, he's passed away since then. Uh, Denny, uh, what's his name? Green. Yeah. Dan Griffin. Danny Griffin. Yeah. Uh, did, did they, uh, and Ron Chepsick is still doing his show. But there was only about three of us 14 right. years ago. Now there's 857,000. Well, I mean, you got that uh, that nut job on, uh, what, Court TV? 
That where she, you know, where she's, you know, they're beating the crap out of whatever current crime. Oh, is uh, Nancy Grace. Yeah, I had a prosecutor. Really had a prosecutor on one time. He said he was watching Nancy Grace, and they were talking about his case and the things they were saying. He'd never heard of in his life. <laughs> what are they talking about? Yeah, Nancy Grace is kind of interesting. She claims to be a savior for the children and she was told about Jeffrey Epstein years ago and she did nothing about it. Well, of course, the uh, the uh, intelligence community probably told her not to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's always the way it's been. Well, okay, so uh, interesting question I wanted to ask. Ask it. Many uh, a famous individual um was in the company of Epstein and or flew in his private jet. How many of them were just getting uh, catching a ride and had nothing to do with what, all the stuff that was going on? I think if you were flying with Epstein, chances are you were in cahoots with him as far as molesting girls. Okay, so one of those famous individuals was Clinton. Yes. Another was Dershowitz. Yeah, and and he is vehemently denying any any connection with or participation in. He lied in an article that I wrote. Uh, if you Google Nick Bryan Glosser uh, passenger logs, Dershowitz said, uh, told the American lawyer that he only flew with his wife and his daughter. And he's on passenger manifests with an absent plane flying with Tatiana and Claire. And um, so he just tried to make a joke out of it. Said, oh, she could be my mother. Um, so he went from being Mr. Serious, and then he couldn't remember who these young women were. With his steel trap mind, got a little rusty. <laughs> yeah, suddenly, mm -hmm. suddenly it got rusty. The... Uh, Epstein's house manager, Alfredo Rodriguez, who ultimately copped up the black book, and then I got a copy of it, circled people that were in cahoots with Epstein and his little paraphilic enterprise, and Dershowitz in the circle. Well, I, uh, I, I just do not believe that at this point anyone that was anyone left in that book that hasn't been seized is scot free. There's, there's going to be no, those, no one's going to come after them now. We, well, I mean, as Americans, we should do something about that. Are, are, are we categorically against child trafficking? Um, I, went to, I, I went to a number of uh, anti-trafficking organizations, and I got them an email saying that there's a lot of perps here, and these perps are just going to keep molesting children unless we shot them. And one of these anti-trafficking organizations emailed me back saying that Epstein is just too ambiguous. And then I sent her an email saying ambiguous, and then I gave her all the names that have come out in the Epstein investigation that Virginia Gouffray has named as perpetrators. So and she never got back. So at this point in time, with uh, so much of, uh, of the evidence and individuals involved not available. Is there any reasonable expectation of a successful prosecution for some of these people? I mean, okay, they were on the plane. The American people. Do the, the American people want to let these, uh, these rich perverts off scot-free? I mean, if that's the case, 
We're going to get let off. But if, um, you're the, if you're the one making the decision to prosecute or not, that decision hopefully is based on the preponderance of the evidence well, that and, the plausibility, the right and the plausibility of a successful prosecution. Money, you have a certain amount of money to spend. So if all you really have is a manifest of him being on the plane, and no other evidence besides that, what do you do? So, here's the thing with that. We know who a lot of these guys are. If these guys lived in uh, trailer parks, They'd be indicted on multiple accounts of child molestation. Hell yes. So, are, are we saying that the rich can molest children? And no, no, I'm can? saying nothing like that. I am saying from a practical standpoint, prosecuting somebody whose name is circled in a book isn't sufficient evidence of that they committed a crime of any kind. Right. We're talking practicality, not not uh, whether they actually are guilty. So, okay, so if, if all you have is a book with a circle in it and a manifest of flying, you, how, uh, how, how difficult is it going to be to convince a jury to connect the dots with no other evidence? It would be impossible, in my opinion. And so I don't, think any, I don't think any of these people are going to get prosecuted unless... Someone who was physically molested by that individual can prove it and comes forward. I think that there could be a lot of girls that could come forward if they felt that it was safe. That's the thing. I, I, Virginia Dupree has named Alan Dershowitz, Prince Andrew, uh, former New Mexico governor, Bill Richardson, billionaire Glenn Dubin, uh, former Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell, scientist Marvin Minsky, John Lee Brunel, Israel Prime Minister uh, Hugh Barak, and Les Wexner as perpetrators. Now, here's the thing with Virginia Dupree. She's, she's going up against Delaine uh, Maxwell and all of Maxwell's money, and she won. She's going up against Prince Andrew and all of Prince Andrew's money, and she's won. And now her and Alan Dershowitz are squaring off. And Alan Dershowitz is already back down from going after Brad Edwards and Paul Cassell, who, who helped Virginia write an affidavit saying that he was a child molester. So there's a lot of evidence. You've got Virginia, what Virginia's saying, you've got a lot of these young girls that could also... And uh, there are a number of these uh, perpetrators. But the government isn't making it safe for them to come forward. That's the problem. Well, that is the government vested interest of not having them come forward because they don't want to scare off potential future people just like Epstein that could be an asset for our intelligence. Well, that's a problem. Are we going to... Is it cool with Americans? I mean, the book that I wrote, uh, The Franklin Scandal, was about a nationwide pedophile network, just like Epstein's that included blackmail and had intelligence tactics. Um, are, are we, and, and that was completely covered up. So are, 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 are we cool with our government sponsoring or colluding with uh, child trafficking. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and answer that question for you. <laughs> um, the American populace, by and large, are sheep. 
I, I believe in the wolf-sheep analysis of, in, of personal interaction in a, in a setting of authority. So if that's your job, your boss and you, uh, or, or in, any, in any kind of setting where someone or something is in charge of you. And the majority of people are sheep. The majority of people are happy to not care about anything that doesn't directly affect them. So you are asking, are the American people against it? The American people are. But unfortunately, the majority of American people don't care about some of this material because it doesn't affect them, it doesn't bother their lives, and they have their own things to worry about or their own uh, predilections to, uh, deal with, uh, to deal with and to fight for and whatever. So it's unfortunate that even though we're, we're not... Even though we're not... We don't want the activity that was going on to continue. There just isn't a, a people will to force government to act, and you have to have this I'm, I'm gra- a ground. You have to have a groundswell of people like the LGBT community and their fight. They were able to make it vocal enough and get enough people behind them to force the political change. But if you have this case where Epstein was had a handful of girls and a handful of people, the majority of Americans don't care. It's not a handful of girls. Epstein trafficked children for 25 years. What he did was horrible. But you have, you, you have to get the message out to all Americans and let them know how, what the scope of the activity was. Yeah. And and uh, how many girl, boys and girls were involved, and the high-ranking individuals that may have been involved, you might you might start to get some movement. But until the government feels any kind of pressure, it's not going to happen. We need a groundswell effort. That's for sure. And, and so your book the, may help that. Hold on, hold on. Let me say something. Here's the thing. Make about it quick, because we're almost done. If uh, our government, if we allow our government to just cover up child molesters with impunity, our government is en route to soul death, to spiritual death, if it's not there already. Right, you're probably correct, but again... If you were to ask a hundred random average Americans who Epstein was, your answer would be he was the guy who hung himself in the in jail. Well, they'll say, isn't he the rabbi uh, down there in Brooklyn? No. Thanks for coming. Really hey, appreciate hey. talking to you. Have me on your podcast someday, pal. Okay. Thank right. you. Hey, Talk Carl. To you later. Yeah. Well, what's next? Well, my editorial opinion, as opposed to the news, is that Magic Man out of the Demons of Decadence. We'll have a vastly entertaining program in just a few minutes on OutlawRadioLive.com.